Well, if you'll turn in a copy of God's Word to Colossians, uh, Colossians chapter 3, as we continue our series. I want to thank PJ for preaching a great sermon. I enjoyed listening to it. Thank you, brother. And thank you, Earl, for, for leading the rest of the service. I'm very thankful for, for you, too. Um, if you're using the Pew Bible, you'll find Colossians chapter 3 on page 1,253. Uh, today we're starting, a, it's going to be a two, maybe three-week series on these verses 12 through 17. Uh, and so we're going to read for context 5 through 17. So let's now stand for the reading as you're able uh, for the Word of God. Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. On account of these, the wrath of God is coming. In these you too once walked when you were living in them. But now you must put them all away. Anger, Anger, wrath, malice, slander, and obscene talk from your mouth. Do not lie to one another, seeing that you have put off the old self with its practices and have put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. Here there is not Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave, free, but Christ is all and in all. Put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, Bearing with one another, and if anyone has a complaint against another, forgiving each other as the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. And above all these, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. Let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you are called in one body, and be thankful. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. And whatever you do, in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through Him. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Oh, Father, thank you for your word. And we pray that you would transform us from one degree of glory into the next. Uh, that we might uh, bear more and more and look more and more like Jesus. We pray that you would do this in this time together. In the name of Jesus, we ask it. Amen. Now, please be seated. You know, in Christ, we are new people. Uh, We are not who we used to be, who we once were. And now God calls us to live out who we've become in Christ, especially in the context of of the local community of faith of the church. Let me say that again. In Christ, we are new people. We're not who we once were. And now God calls us to live out whom we've become in Christ, especially in the community of God's people. You know, there's a big difference uh, between not doing something bad and doing something good. Do you know what I mean by that? There's a big difference between not doing something bad and then actually doing something good. Think about it. If you have a neighbor whom you would like to kill, uh, please don't do that. That would be bad, right? Now, if if you don't kill that neighbor and you've not done that badness, that still doesn't make you a good neighbor, does it? In fact, that person may not even know that you exist, may not know your name. It's not just enough that we cease ungodliness, but God calls us to put on godliness, to replace 
with something good, that which, that which we have put off, that which is bad. Paul told us a few weeks ago uh, to put off a lot of sins in verses 5 through 11, sexual morality, impurity, passion, evil desire, covetousness. But while not doing those things is a good thing, it doesn't mean that we are fulfilling God's call for us to walk in the newness of life, of that which He has created us to be. You know, if you tell your kids not to yell at each other, that's good. They shouldn't yell at each other. But there's a big difference between not yelling at each other and being kind to one another. You've seen that, right? Paul uses the metaphor of clothing in verses 5 through 17. He tells us to put off, to take off, to unclothe ourselves of the patterns of sin that belong to our old selves. Right? That's good. To take off those things. If those old patterns of sin are clothing, we are called to take off those filthy garments. But as we all know, when you're, when you're getting dressed, the taking off is only part of the equation. Please continue on to the next part, which is putting on the new clothes. He's saying take off the old clothes and put on the new clothes. Put on Christ. Put on your new self. Clothe yourselves with the qualities and moral attributes that belong to those who have come to Christ. We have this anchor verse that's going to guide us for the next two, three weeks, and it's verse 17 at the very bottom. And whatever you do in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, giving thanks to God the Father through Him. We have been created new people. The old has passed away, the new has come. We have been united to Christ, and now our lives are meant to be about the glory of another, not of ourselves, meant to be the glory of Jesus. And so God calls us in our passage to basically act whom we've been declared to be in Christ. We are different people. Now we are called to act like it by putting on virtues that are godly and bring glory to the name of Jesus. You'll remember that Paul is writing to a small church in a small town, much like ours in Colossae. You know, a lot of people look down on small towns and small churches and small churches in small towns. Uh, did you know, though, that about two-thirds of the congregation, congregations across all denominational lines in America have fewer than 100 people? So, so here's the thing. That's not a bad thing. God's people are scattered all, all around the world, all throughout our country. In small churches, most people go to small churches. God doesn't look down at small churches. He loves small churches. He loves small churches in small towns. In fact, he uses some words about the Colossians here and therefore about us that are pretty amazing. He he says, put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved. These three words are so important as we think about who we are now in Christ Jesus, no longer being, if we're Christians, who we once were. Now we're chosen by God. We are holy and beloved by God. What amazing words. In fact, these three words are really important ones. They're used throughout the Old Testament to talk about God's people, Israel. The church is Israel, right? Gentiles have been grafted in to God's people. There's one people of God, Old Testament and New. And now we, as God's people, by faith, are spiritual sons and daughters of Abraham. And now these descriptors, these wonderful descriptors of of God's people in the Old Testament apply to us. 
These promises are our promises. And so we have been chosen by God. The Greek word here means elect. God has, uh, PJ did a wonderful job last week. I was so blessed by your sermon, brother, of talking about election. Right? And it's not meant to be something that gives us pride, but rather shows us that God loves us despite of all of our messes. In fact, there's no other way we could be saved. And not only have we been chosen by God, but we uh, are now declared holy. How in the world could you call me holy? If you do, let's chat. Because there's that tension of my life and your life too that the Bible says I am holy. And yet, ethically, my day-to-day is a fight to be holy, and sometimes I don't fight it very well, and I know you don't either. Sometimes we don't even desire to be holy, but we've been declared to be holy and righteous, cleansed by the blood of Jesus, and accepted as perfect in God's sight, all because of what Jesus has done for us. And so this Colossian church was a mess. You had false teaching coming in this way. You had uh, that underlying struggle with these Gentile young believers to go back to their old wild living. You can imagine the struggles in their heart. And yet he declares them and us, you are holy. You're set apart for God. Not because of anything in you, but because of what Christ has done for you. And then he says, this this is the most amazing of them all, that you are God's beloved. Now the Greek... For you English teachers, do you remember participles? Remember participles? In the Greek, participles can act like nouns. And so the Greek literally says here, the having been loved ones. It takes us a whole bunch of words to say what the Greek says. The having been loved ones is the perfect tense, which means it's something that happened in the past and has ongoing, not stopping ramifications. Who are you? You are the having been loved ones the having been loved ones of God. How do we know He loved us? Well, He sent His Son to die for us. And love, your Savior, offered Himself up as a sacrifice, a fragrant offering to the Lord. That's what we read in our call to worship this morning. You are the having been beloved, the having been loved ones of God. And there's nothing that can change that. Now we are called to live like it. And that's the rub, isn't it? There's, don't let anybody ever tell you there's no effort in the Christian life. We are saved by grace, saved by faith in Christ Jesus. Amen, 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 and amen. And out of that salvation, out of that new heart, that, that new change is within us, comes a new life. And it takes daily effort to fight sin, to fight the old self, and to put on the new self. Put on then as these things, as the chosen, as the holy as those who are beloved, now you got to do something about it. Put on these things that are very difficult. Very difficult. By the way, don't be afraid of your outline today. It's going to take us two to three weeks to get through it. So when I start, and when I don't make it very far through, don't think that we're going to be here at supper time. Uh, you know, in Christ we are new people. We are not who we once were. And now God calls us to live as we have become in Christ, especially in the community of God's people. As we seek to do all things to the glory of God and to the glory of the name of our Savior Jesus, we are called to fight and to, with effort, relying on the power of the Holy Spirit and the means of grace to fight sin and to put on godliness.
Before we start walking through these virtues, uh, let me just make these two uh, comments. First, the virtues listed in verses 12 through, four, 12 through 14 are ones that are exemplified by Jesus. We are called to do these things, to have these virtues in us, to put on these godly traits because we have received them in Jesus. We have no further to look than the life of Jesus and His ministry to us, both in His earthly ministry and His heavenly ministry, to know how we are to act towards one another. Jesus is the example. But the second is that none of these virtues make sense apart from community. If you start thinking about one of these things, these things make no sense if we're just an island unto ourselves with no connection or contact with other people, and especially the community of God. One of the things that COVID really wrecked the church with was isolation, and it poured on fuel a pandemic that we already had, and that was loneliness. And we have, after COVID, right, not everybody's come back. Did you know that after COVID, a third of churchgoers walked away from the church across the board? I'm not talking about our church. I'm talking about across the board, across denominations. A third did not come back to the church. Statistically now, that number is 80% have come back, or the numbers are 80, back to 80% of what they once were. Like, why is that? Because we've forgotten out of habit that we need each other. And that there is no Christian life apart from being in life with other Christians. God called us individually, and He called us together as individually to be the one people of God. So none of these virtues make any sense if we're not doing community together. And so Paul, and therefore God, must put at a great, um, great priority the gathering of God's people. All right, so let's, let's walk through these things. First, we are called to put on compassionate hearts. Now, if you have a King James Version, I love the King James uh, translation of this. It says that you should put on the bowels of mercies. I like that. Uh, what in the world does that mean? In fact, that's a much better and literal translation of this verse. There are, two, uh, there are two Greek words here, and they both refer to your intestines. Why would Paul ever say something like that? Well, the intestines, your bowels, back in that day, the Jews thought that's where our greatest emotions came from, uh, like love and affection and mercy. Now, now, here's the thing. Compassion and mercy, they don't come naturally to us do they? Compassion and mercy do not come naturally to us. Belonging to the old man, to my old sinful self. right? The, because compassion and mercy means to be moved by the plight of others, which means we must look beyond our own self-interests. And a lot of times we will do compassion and mercy in such a way that it has nothing to do with the other person. You ever done this before? Man, I did that, and I, 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 just, I just feel so much better about myself. Right? You ever done that one? Now, being kind to people does make you feel good. God designed it. He wired those things. That When we're godly, it, it encourages us. Those are good things. But sometimes we can give gifts to each other. We can help other people that has nothing to do with the person that we're helping. It has everything to do with myself and wanting to be praised. 
That's old man. That's old self, mercy and compassion. New self, in Christ, compassion and mercy doesn't look to our own interests, but to the interests of others. Now, when Paul is writing to the Colossians, uh, he's writing to the Colossians in a culture that has no time for mercy or compassion. In the Roman world, mercy and compassion were bad words. It was a place without mercy and compassion. As one commentator pointed out, the maimed and sickly and old were just often discarded. Baby girls were left outside to die of exposure. And the mentally ill were not seen as less than human, but as non-human, right, with no dignity and value. In the midst of all that, Paul is writing to the Colossians saying, that doesn't belong to you. That belongs to your old self. Instead, put on compassionate hearts. Put on a, a merciful heart for others, and especially those without advocate, especially those whom the culture would discard. They are precious to God. Don't you remember what Jesus said when everyone wanted to discard the children? He said, for to such belongs the kingdom of God. He loves children. He loves those who need our help and compassion. You know, this compassion and mercy that we're called to have towards one another comes ultimately from the compassion and mercy that Christ has shown to us. Where, Where is not only our example, but also the thing that fuels our mercy and compassion? It is Jesus. Matthew 9.36 uses the same words here, the bowels of mercy, as the King James puts it. And when he saw the crowds, Jesus, he had compassion for them because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. Jesus and his disciples were tired at that point. They had just returned. The disciples had just returned from going out two by two. They were exhausted. Jesus had just heard of the death of John the Baptist. And they withdrew to a desolate place to detox, to debrief, and to get some rest. And then Jesus looks up in this desolate place, and there are just tons of people. He's about to feed them, actually. And you and I, what, what, well, I don't know about you. I know what I would have done. Uh, we're going to make an appointment for next week. Thank you very much. Uh, and I don't have time for this. But Jesus, what did he do? Out of the bowels of his mercy, right? Out of, out of his deep, compassionate heart, he saw that they were helpless Right? That they, um, where is it word? He, they were harassed like sheep without a shepherd. And so he did something about it. Jesus has been so kind. He has been so merciful. He has such compassion on you and me. Now let's think about application for a minute. So we put off, so we want to put off those things which are ungodly. What does it look like to put on mercy and compassion? as individuals in a church. Are, are there any, is there anyone in your midst that you need to express compassionate care, mercy, and love towards or your family, your workplace? We're going to talk about either this week or, or next. Uh, looks like probably next. Uh, humility, right? That's, that means everybody looks at their watch and... Uh, Oh, good old preaching craft there. Uh, yeah, so what was I talking about? Something about Jesus. Uh, so so hum- we must have humility if we're ever going to be concerned about anybody other than ourselves. In our natural setting is me, myself, and I, and I'll get around to you when I have a free moment, which increasingly I just don't. But Jesus, when he didn't have a minute, he stopped. 
He had compassion on the crowds. Is there anyone in your family that you have not had compassion and mercy for? So oftentimes we can be so demanding of those whom we love the most. How dare you not live up to my standard? You have failed again. Let me throw this in your face one more time. There's no mercy in that. Praise God, Jesus doesn't do that to us. For as far as the east is from the west, so far has He removed our transgressions from us, and they're no longer before Him. And in divine forgetfulness, as PJ talked about last week, they're no longer before Him. And yet we love not to have mercy on those around us because it makes us feel so good. Lord, have mercy on me. The next is kindness. You know, Christ's compassionate heart towards sinners like you and me was expressed in His kindness. We might say kindness is, is putting into effect that, that, uh, that compassionate heart, you know, putting wheels on it. We read of His compassion, or excuse me, His kindness uh, and His mercy in Titus 3, 4 through 5. But when the goodness and loving kindness of our God, our Savior, appeared, when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared. Loving kindness refers to Jesus. Who is the loving kindness of God? It is our Savior. When you looked upon Jesus, He was and is kindness. And yet it is so much easier to be kind to those who are kind to us and those who are lovely. But praise be to God that His kindness wasn't directed towards those who deserved it, because none of us did. It was directed towards those who were in active rebellion against Him, who were dead in their trespasses and sins, wanted nothing to do with Him, and were following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work of the sons of disobedience, the devil. Oh, praise God. I'm so thankful for the compassion and mercy of Jesus. That out of, out of His mercy, He might save me, that He might show me the kindness of His love the unsurpassing kindness of His love, not only here but in the life to come. There's great power and kindness, isn't there? You know, the opposite of the Greek word kindness, as we told the young children, is severity and roughness. Those, those are the, so if you look at the Greek word of kindness, the, the Greek antonym, the Greek opposites, are severity and roughness. As a church, brothers and sisters, we are family, knit together by Christ, saved by His blood, adopted by the Father, and dwelt by the Spirit. And because of who we are, God has called us to live it out and to be kind one to another, not be rough or severe. There will always be different opinions, perspectives, and desires in any family, and especially in a church family. In your family, you might have two to seven to eight people. We've got a few more than that on the rolls. And we're going to disagree at some point. And that's okay. It's okay to disagree. This is how we work through things and come to a great solution. Usually, when there's a difference of opinions, it actually drives us to a better solution than either person came up with to begin with. But as a culture, we have confused disagreeing with someone and being disagreeable with someone. We can disagree without being disagreeable. Do you understand the difference there? So I was writing this sermon, and 
Sometimes Jesus just throws in a, an illustration out of the own hardness of my heart. I was uh, writing the sermon Thursday afternoon. I was tired. I was exhausted. I was behind schedule, way behind schedule. And uh, I needed to get out of the office to clear my head. So I usually go and get an iced tea from somewhere in town. I won't tell you where. Uh, and I go to this place to get iced tea. And y'all, I had probably the worst experience I've ever had at a restaurant of this kind. In fact, it was unsafe. It was so bad. I've never called one of those numbers. You know, call us, tell us how we're doing. I've never called one of those. And I, I, I did Thursday. So I got out of the office in order to clear my head. And then meanwhile, you know, I went into this unsafe, very hostile environment. This terrible stuff happened. And I remembered I was writing a sermon on being kind. By God's grace, I made it out of that place without saying a word, except a little thing under my mouth as I walked out the door. Uh, but I know in my heart, I was in a very different place. And I had to come back and actually write this part of my sermon. Maybe I should write this sermon every week. It might help my heart. Um, you know, being kind to others, it actually is pretty easy to understand how to apply it. This is not one of those hard things to learn how to apply. It just means being nice to folks, being kind. I'm not talking about being a pushover, but being kind. But it's so hard to put into practice, especially when others are unkind with you and me. I know it is in my heart. Let me ask you something. Is there someone that you have been unkind towards recently? We're just going to stop there and let the Holy Spirit work just a minute. Is there anyone that you need to ask for forgiveness from? A husband? A wife? Mother? Father? Child? Neighbor? Fellow church member? You know, being unkind and being severe and hostile, that really is sin. And God wants better things for that, than that, in our, in our homes, and in our lives, and our hearts. Because we have received the kindness of Jesus. We who deserve no kindness at all have received the all-surpassing, immeasurable kindness, the riches of His kindness and grace towards us. And y'all, when, when, when we can be honest with each other, and ask for forgiveness when we've been unkind, it'll transform your marriage. It'll change that relationship that has always been plagued by difficulty. It'll bring revival and renewal to a church, a small group, a Sunday school class, a you name it. Because we have received the kindness of God, we can admit when we have sinned because God is not going to throw us out of His love. In fact, out of His love, He desires us to grow in God and to put on whom we have become in Christ. And so walk in His, His Spirit all to the name, glory of the name of the Father. Well, there's obviously more to this, which we'll pick up in next week and, and, and probably the week, week after. Let me just say a few things in closing. Um, so we started by saying if we're in Christ, we're new people. We are not who we once were. Now God calls us to live out whom we become in Christ, especially in the community of God's people. We are God's chosen ones, His holy ones, the having been loved ones. 
You know, these things are ours in Christ, and now we're called to act like it. We have this anchor verse in verse 17, and whatever you do in word or deed, to do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, giving thanks to God the Father through Him. As Christians, we bear the name of Jesus wherever we go, including restaurants when we're mistreated. It's like we have a big stencil on our forehead, Jesus follower. And, And will we put on godly things that we might glorify God in how we interact with other people? I won't. I want to. I want to. Lord, help me. And, and finally, we find throughout this verse, three t- or passage, three times the word thankfulness. And essentially, the word thankfulness in this passage, there are two words for thankfulness in the Greek. This one actually has as its base grace. That when we thank God, we're giving grace to Him. Now, we're not giving God anything He needs, but it's the same root. This idea of responding to the great gift that He has given to us in Christ Jesus, being thankful for what He has done for us. What do we have to be thankful for? What do we have to be thankful for? Perhaps it's that God Himself humbled Himself and was born a man. He humbled Himself to the point of death, even death on a cross, and then He rose up from that grave. My favorite parts, the Apostles' Creed, and up, uh, what does it say? On the third day He rose again, right? And now this gentle Savior extends to you out of His compassionate heart and kindness the offer of forgiveness and salvation that He has purchased for His chosen ones, His having been loved ones. Have you received the gift of salvation? I prayed for you this morning if you haven't. Several times I've prayed for you. That today might be the day of your salvation. What What would keep you from accepting Christ today? If there's something keeping you, let's talk about that. Okay? Let's pray. Our Lord Jesus Christ, we thank you for your compassion and mercy, um, your kindness that you have shown to us. And Lord, I pray that we would extend those things to others as well, that we might act like whom you've declared us to be. In the name of Jesus, we ask it. Amen. Well, this morning we conclude our service as we stand and sing um, a psalm. Our our text includes this command to sing psalms, and so we're going to do that today. Uh, Let's stand and sing number 401, Psalm 42.